Well, what a blessing to be here with you this morning and to have the opportunity to open the Word of God together. Your pastor has been so gracious uh, to extend that invitation, and I never take any opportunity to share the Word, be a part of uh, sitting under the Word lightly, and uh, pastor, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's been a real blessing. I had the wonderful privilege this morning of getting an introduction to your church through your youth group, and I was um, welcomed there. Uh, I was, uh, had the privilege of speaking to them. You know, I, for, for 34 years now, 35 years, I have preached in many, many churches, and I've learned something uh, about churches, and one of the best ways to get to know what's really going on spiritually in a church is to hang out with the young people. And so this morning, I was really, really blessed. Um, If you see a teenager this morning or a young person in your youth group, you need to thank them because they have been wonderful representatives of the Lord and wonderful representatives of your church, and they have a secret that I didn't know about. And I was introduced to that secret for the first time in my entire life. I had never tasted a Shipley donut. I'm a Krispy Kreme guy. You know, there's the donut wars. You're aware of the donut wars. Uh, There's Dunkin' Donuts, the dark side of the Dunkin' Wars. And then there is the uh, Krispy Kreme. Well, actually, there's a third contender. And uh, it's the the rise of the new Jedi in the Shipley Donut brand. So I I had one this morning, and it was wonderful. I appreciate so much the opportunity uh, to be with them. They were a wonderful representative of the Lord and of your church. Well, I'm going to ask you to take your Bible this morning to the third chapter in the book of Ecclesiastes. Some uh, months ago, actually almost a year ago now, as I was preparing to make the move from South Carolina to California, a very close friend of mine who would always uh, sort of float in and out of my life during the day at least once came through where I was and said to me, uh, I want you to remember this number. And he gave me a number, 25,915. I want you to remember that number, 25,915. His name was Jerry. And I said, Jerry, what in the world? I'm in the middle of something. And he just pops in, 25,915, write it down, we'll talk later. Well, I'm not good with numbers, um, so I'm trying to find something to write it down with. So I finally get that number of 25,915 written down. By the way, if you have an opportunity to write it down, write it down somewhere so you remember it. And um, so throughout the day, I get these little, little communications from him. Don't forget, 25,915. It's like, okay. So that number changed the way I think about life. And it ties directly to what we're looking at here in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, when when you think about the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is giving to us really some amazing truth about life under the sun. When uh, When I moved out to California, took my family out there, we moved out in May and we, we had to figure out where we were going to live. And, and so in California, that's no small task. And so we had people that gave us all kinds of advice. Oh, here's where, this is where you want to live. I mean, if Jesus were here, he would live here. And that kind of thing. So we're just trying to figure all of this out. And one of the most helpful things that happened to us was one of the folks at the seminary said, look, why don't you get in your car? You and Beth get in our car. And... Um, And let me just drive you. Let me just take you all over, and let me sort of give you the lay of the land. And he explained to us that uh, Santa Clarita, where the Master's University is, is sort of a valley in sort of a V. There's there's this major highway that goes up north called Highway 5, and then there's this other highway, Highway 14, that goes up to another part of California, and between those two highways in this V is this place called Santa Clarita. And then there are all kinds of little mountains and hills that sort of 
kind of divide up that valley so that there are little, little valleys within the valley. And so you're going to have to try to figure out where all of this was. And it was immensely helpful, but it still was very, very confusing. So we ended up buying a place, and right around our, our house are these what seem to me to be mountains. Every time I call them mountains, people just snicker. They're little foothills. But I grew up in McAllen, Texas. The highest thing we had in McAllen, McAllen Texas was the overpass. And so when I look at these hills, they're like mountains. And so one day I got pretty aggressive. I thought, I'm going to go for a hike up on those mountains. And so I went up on those mountains, those little hills, and about a mile along the way, there is this massive, beautiful overlook. And I stopped, and I was able to look out, and I was able to see the entire valley. And everything that I had been hearing and everything that that guy was telling me in the car immediately made sense because I was able to look at the whole thing. The book of Ecclesiastes is wisdom from God through the pen of the wisest man that ever lived on the face of the earth with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ himself about life. You have been hearing this information your entire Christian life. But as you navigate life, and as you sort of make your way through life, all of those pieces that you heard about here and here and here don't always come together. And every once in a while, you need somebody to take you up to an overlook so that you can see the whole thing. And when you see the whole thing, it comes together. And that's what Solomon is doing in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's taking you up and he's showing you what life under the sun looks like. That little phrase, under the sun, is going to go throughout the book. And as you go throughout the book, Solomon is going to constantly talk about life under the sun, and what he's talking about is life on this planet. So what is that life like? And so let me just give you sort of a brief overview before we get to the text in front of us. Solomon starts off by giving you a summary of that life under the sun. And this is what he says. Now listen, as you walk through this life, as you have life under the sun, here's, here's the first thing that you need to know as you look at the big picture. And he has a stunning statement. He says, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. That's exactly how he starts in chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. And the idea there is that this word vanity is, is, is a word that sort of is, is a key to understanding Solomon's picture that he's trying to paint you. And the word vanity there is it's not sort of the idea that it's, it's empty and worthless and, and it doesn't really matter. The idea there is that it is enigmatic. It is, it is difficult, if not impossible, to comprehend. When you try to put all the pieces together, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. When you try to comprehend how it all works... You know there are laws of nature. You know certain things are true. There are repeated patterns. And so when you try to set out your life plan and you try to bank on things you know, life is constantly throwing you a curveball. Things don't work the, the way you think they should work. It's enigmatic. It, you, you can't figure it out. When you put it all together, it is elusive. It's like wind. You know wind is there. You see wind. You understand the value of wind. You can feel its effect. But when you try to capture wind or you try to predict wind, it's elusive. It is unpredictable. And Solomon says there is a reason for this. When I show you this picture from the top of the hill and you look down, at life under the sun, the first thing you know is that it is elusive and it is absurd. It doesn't make sense. Solomon says, listen, you're going to see things that don't make sense. For example, you're going to see that sometimes what should happen to the righteous actually, actually happens to the wicked. And what you would expect God would bring upon the wicked actually appears to happen to who? The righteous. Someone's going to say, look, I'm telling you, sometimes life is absolutely absurd. I have seen 
kings walking and servants riding. So life is elusive. Life doesn't make sense all the time, and it's unpredictable. It's hevel. That's the word. That's the Hebrew word for vanity. It sounds a lot like a name that you're introduced to in Genesis 3 and 4, which is the, the first child, the first image bearer ever birthed in the world was the son of Adam and Eve, and his name was Abel, Abel, right? And upon him, Adam and Eve had pinned their entire hope. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 4, what has happened to Abel, what has happened to that entire hope, something you never anticipated. His blood has been violently shed by his own brother. You never saw that coming. And Solomon says that is exactly what his life under the sun is like. It is Hevel. And the reason it is like that is in verse 16 of chapter 1. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, Psalmist says, look, when I show you this picture and I tell you that it is elusive and observed, there's a reason for it. The, the pieces of the puzzle that God created, many of those pieces are bent and twisted, and some of the pieces are missing altogether, and you don't even know what pieces are missing. And what's even more astonishing is Solomon later in the book in chapter 7 says, now I want you to know something. The reason that it is that way in chapter 7 verse 13 is because God made it that way. He says this, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. So here we are at the top of the hill. We're looking down on life under the sun, and Solomon says, you want wisdom? Here's wisdom. Number one, life is absurd and elusive. And the reason for this is that the pieces of life are bent, and many of the pieces are missing altogether. And, and the reason for all of this is something that God did in response to something that Adam did. And then Solomon says, let me, show you the, let me show you another thing. As we look from the top of the hill down at life under the sun, let me show you another thing about life under the sun. It is meaningless and unprofitable if that's all you have. You can see this in the question that Solomon asks in chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, what is the advantage? The word gain there is an accounting word. It's what you would use to describe a business venture where you put in resources and investment, and, and, and then at the end of the venture, you want to see what has come in, what, what, what has been the, 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 the revenue that has come in for those resources and toil. And then when you, when you add it all up together, you want to know how much profit you got from that venture. And Solomon says, if you want to know what life under the sun is like at the end when you have invested your entire life and all of your resources and all of your energy and whatever venture you take in life under the sun and you come to the end of it and you want to know what the gain is, you have a zero gain. Solomon is going to say it this way. You can live your entire life and make a pile of money and when you die, you do what? You leave it for who? Somebody else who may not have even have worked for it. You go out just like you came in. You go out with empty hands. Life under the sun, if that's all you are living for, is a zero-sum proposition. There is no gain. And then he says, on top of that, as you think about life under the sun, life under the sun is painful and difficult. That's just how life under the sun is. Basically, Solomon says, it is an unhappy business with which God has given man to be busy with. And then in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. 
You want an illustration of this right out of your Bible? Jacob, at the end of his life in Genesis 47, meets Pharaoh for the first time. And in a stunning reversal of roles, instead of Pharaoh blessing Jacob, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh says to him, so tell me about life. And this is what Jacob told Pharaoh, the days of my sojourning, the days of my journey are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days and the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. Solomon says that's life in this elusive, upside-down, topsy-turvy, can't-make-sense-of-it world. Life under the sun is painful and difficult. And then he says something else. It has been like this for a long time. It has been like this ever since Genesis 4. And you get to chapter 1, and you start reading in verse 4, and you go all the way down to verse 11, and you find the first of three poems in the song, uh, in, in Ecclesiastes. There's this poem, then there's the one we're going to look at in just a minute in chapter 3, and then when you get to chapter 12, there is a third and final poem, and a lot of the book's message for us are in those poems. And so Solomon says, now I'm, I'm telling you from the top of the hill what you're looking at when you look from this hill and you look down at life under the sun, and, and what we've painted for you, Solomon says, is difficult, and it's been like this for a long time. Listen to how he says this. A generation goes, and a generation comes, verse 4 of chapter 1. But the earth remains forever. The sun rises, and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind. And on its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The, uh, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. The ear Filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Now, Solomon stops and he says, Now I want to show you an amazing thing. And it's like he pulls us over to the very edge of this sort of place where we're looking. This, this lookout point where we can get the very best view. And he says, now, I've shown you what life under the sun is like. It is elusive. It is absurd. It is a zero gain. There's no profit to this. And it is painful and difficult. But I want you to see something. And he starts pointing here and here and here. And he says, I want to show you a group of people who have figured out how life under the sun should work for them. And they're right over there. These people are in that same world. They have the same circumstances happening to them. But these people have figured out how to go home and enjoy their wife. They get up in the same sort of context and find enjoyment in their toil. This is in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. In verse 26 of chapter 2, they have wisdom, knowledge, and joy. In chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, they are joyful and they do good for as long as they live. In verse 22 of chapter 3, they rejoice in their work and they joy in their portion or in their lot. In chapter 5, verse 18, they live good and fitting lives by enjoying their food and drink and joyfully laboring in their vocation. And in chapter 5, verse 19, they are content with their possessions, their vocation, and their circumstances in life. Solomon says, I don't want you to miss those people. You're looking at life under the sun. It's been like this for generation after generation after generation, there is nothing new under the sun. And in this mixed up, topsy-turvy, zero-sum game life that doesn't make sense, there is a group of people 
that have figured out how to navigate it. And so if I'm up there on the hill with Solomon and you're up there with me, we have a question. Solomon, who are those people? And Solomon says those people are people who have a relationship with someone who is above the earth. And then you start hearing this little new note that comes into the story that Solomon's telling us from the top of the hill. All of a sudden, it's not under the sun, it's under heaven. There, there are people who live under the sun, but they have a unique relationship to someone who is in heaven. And the description that Solomon uses for these people is this, they fear the Lord. They are marked by the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh. This is, this is an Old Testament expression to describe someone who has a personal, intimate relationship with the God of heaven, the God of the Bible. That's who these people are. And what has put them in this place of blessing and contentment in the midst of this broken, mixed up, missing parts, twisted parts world is that the God of heaven has given them words. And I want you to see this. Go to chapter 12 for a minute. Verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So these words that these people have received have come from a shepherd. They are firmly given. They are given at the end of verse 11 by one shepherd. So there is a shepherd who is giving words to these people, and these words are words that will produce delight and that will give reliable guidance. They are true words. And when you think about these words, here's what they function like. They're like goads. They, they prod people. They, th these people have a unique relationship to the shepherd who's given them words, and these words push them in the right direction. And they are like nails, right? They are uh, like uh, nails firmly fixed. So, so these are words that will guide these people in the right direction, and they will stabilize people in all of the topsy-turvy events that come in life. And Solomon says, these are the words that you need. Beware of anything beyond these. And there will be many other words that will come into your life. Of the making of many books, there is no end. And much study is weariness of flesh. Solomon says, look, there is one set of words from one source, and these words are true words intended to bring delight. They will guide you in the right way, and they will stabilize you in this topsy-turvy, absurd, enigmatic, missing parts, twisted, bented parts world if you listen to these words alone. And the proof of it is all through Ecclesiastes are these people who fear God and they have gotten words. So, what words has Solomon given to these people that give them such stability? And I think the words are right in chapter 3 when Solomon begins to talk about time. So I want us to look at that poem together. It's the entire chapter, and so we'll do a very quick survey. I'm very conscious of our time together this morning. But that backdrop from on top of the hill gives you a perspective of what Solomon is talking about. There's a group of people in this mixed-up, topsy-turvy, absurd, doesn't make sense, zero-sum. You go in with what you came at. You go out with what you came in. World. And Solomon says, if you want to navigate that world correctly, there are words a shepherd who's given you, and those words are intended to bring delight in your life, and they are intended to 
uh, push you in the right direction, to guide you, and they are intended to stabilize you. And these are the words alone that you need. And here are the people who have those words and who understand those words, and here's the evidence of that all through the book. So what has the shepherd said to those people about time? And here's the thing that he said. And and let me just give them to you very quickly. Number one, God is the sole architect and sovereign ruler over time. I mean, listen to how he says it. For everything, verse 1 of chapter 3, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then he's going to lay out 29 different times in eight verses using the word time, what this is like. There's a 14 stanza poem that he's going to lay out about time. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate. A time for war and time for peace. 28 different things, seasons, listed in 14 pairs, encompassing everything you experience in life, all the relationships you enjoy in life, all of the responsibilities you incur in life, all of our sorrows and joys, our pains and pleasures. And it starts with birth and it ends with death. And between all of that, regardless of who you are, this is what your seasons will be like. And someone is architecting all of this. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Solomon has been talking about under the sun. And so here now is someone who is above the sun, who is controlling everything under heaven. You know, the book of Revelation is the clearest example and illustration of what this looks like. When you get into Revelation chapter 4, the first thing you see is a massive throne. And the one sitting on that throne is governing everything in the universe. And more specifically, he is architecting and sovereignly orchestrating everything that happens on the surface of a little planet halfway around the universe in the backwaters of the Milky Way called Earth. Everything under the sun is being orchestrated by someone who is in heaven. So whatever's going on in your life and mine is being architected by the sovereignty of a powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, omniscient, omnipresent God who rules from heaven. And, And the second thing Solomon says, now that person who is architecting all of these seasons in your life is actually at work in time. He's actually doing something in time. Look at verse nine. What gain has the worker from that which in he toils. I have seen the task which God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. There is a task, a vocation that God has assigned the sons of men. And then God himself has made everything appropriate in its time. He also has set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know There is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. God has called men to work. He has assigned a vocation for the sons of men to do. Do you realize you are uniquely wired and gifted to do the thing that you were called to do? Your pastor was so kind when he introduced me and just to let people know I was a chemistry major. Do you realize something? I, was, I would have been miserable if I was a chemistry major. I was miserable as a chemistry major. I, was, I just thought, chemistry is awesome. You know, you can make stuff blow up. It's awesome. And then I got into chemistry and I began to realize, I'm not, this is, this is not what I'm wired to do. This is not how God designed me. And so here I am, and I'm doing the thing this morning that God wired me to do. I am so thankful now, even though it was very painful then, that I had to come to realize God did not make me for the thing I thought I wanted to do. 
And that's exactly how God is at work in your life. There's a reason some of you love numbers. You just love them when, when they all line up and they all add together. I'm like, you know what? You know, if, if, if it's within $100, it's good. And some of you are like, I cannot sleep if I don't have the exact number lining up. And you obsess about it and, and you're like, the happiest moment is when you find that mistake and you are willing to spend hours looking for why this is off by two cents. I can't relate to you. And you can't relate to me. You're like, are you kidding me? The God of heaven, the precise God of heaven who knows where every atom is, and you can't relate to me, then you can't relate to God. I mean, do you see this? I mean, God wired you a certain way. Some of you wake up and, and, and creativity just pours out of you. The rest of us are going, I don't know what you just drew, but it's, I'm sure it's awesome, right? I mean, God wired you a certain way, and then God gave you a vocation. He gave you a task to do. Just like he has assigned and given tasks for the unsaved. In fact, your task may be done right alongside somebody who doesn't know the Lord. And so God is at work in time, and he has assigned you a task. And then he himself is taking your task, he is taking your season or whatever's going on, and he is doing the right thing with it. God is making everything beautiful in its time. Verse 11. The idea there, very simply, is this. God is always doing the right thing at the right time. God is never behind. He is never ahead. God is always doing the right thing at the right time. Solomon wants you to know that. And he has placed an understanding that you were made for more than time. You were made for more than time. He has put eternity into man's heart. He wove it into the design of your DNA. You instinctively know that time matters, but you know that, is, that it isn't all that matters. You know that. There's something inside you that knows instinctively and, and you're concerned about, no matter how you push it off, that, that at the end of this time, birth and death, I'm, I'm worried about what's coming next because I know that I was made for more than just this. And then God says something amazing here. God has said, I have hidden the full understanding of that work I am doing for men who only look for answers under the sun. You see that? Notice, notice how he says this. He put eternity in a man's heart, but he did it in this way. Yet so that he, man, cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so Solomon says God is at work in time. And then the third thing Solomon says about time and life and seasons under the sun is that God has a purpose for time. Look at verses 14 and 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. God alone rules over time. He alone understands his purposes for all that he is orchestrating in the immediacy of the moment of my time. He has limited my understanding of time so that my desire to know the full meaning of my time will actually drive me to the one who is the only one who knows the answer because he's hidden it from me. If I'm going to find out the meaning, I'm never going to find it by just humanly reasoning through it I'm going to have to go to the one who hid it. And by the way, when I get there, I find out that he is able to do anything in spite of time. He knows what's happened. He knows what will happen. And he's the only one who can recover that which has been lost. That's an amazing statement. So God has a purpose for time. And then 
the fourth thing Solomon does here is, is he says, now, I want you to, as we're at the top of the hill looking at this, and you're getting words from this shepherd about the seasons of your life, I want you to see a fourth thing. I, I want you to understand how God assesses the moral character of the seasons of life around you. I want you to see how God assesses the moral character of the seasons of life around you. Look at verse 16 of this text. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said, my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time, a season for every matter and for every work. And I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. That they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For whatever happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast, the animal, is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They stop breathing. They all have the same breath. And so man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. And, and when they stop breathing, they all go to the same place. The, what place? Dust corruption, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. This is not talking about that there is no afterlife and there is no heaven or no hell. It's just simply Solomon saying, look, on, on this planet, because of the curse, you and all of the living, breathing creatures on this planet are going to suffer the same fate. You're going to die. And when you die, the same thing is going to happen to your body. It's going to corrupt and it's going to go back to dust. And then he says this, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit goes down into the earth. In other words, who knows whether something else happens to man different than what happens to an animal when you put their bodies down in the, in the middle of the earth. When you bury them in the earth, what happens to the soul of that man? Who knows whether it goes upward? That, that's the idea of that text. I saw there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after? Our time on earth, Solomon says, is an evil time. In the place where righteousness and justice should be, even there is wickedness and corruption. Paul said this to the Ephesians, didn't he? He said, redeem the time because the days are what? Evil. And, and then he says, our time on earth is not just done in an, in, in an evil context. It, it's done in a limited allotment. Death comes to all. Those who say, eat, drink, and make merry, for tomorrow we die, are right about one thing. Tomorrow we die. At some point in the future, be it near or far, we're going to die. Death comes to all. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man, every man wants to die. There, there, the death is coming. So why not just eat, drink, and make merry in this mixed up, missing parts, bent pieces world? Well, the answer to that is in the second part of Hebrews 9.27, after this is what? The judgment. This is exactly what Solomon says in verse 17 of chapter 3 in this great poem about time. God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time, a season for every matter and for every work. So here we are, top of the hill, Solomon, wisest man ever lived, saying to you, you want to understand life under the sun? Let me show it to you. Here it is, in this broken, elusive, absurd, zero-sum end life that's been going on since Genesis chapter 3. And, and while you're looking at that picture under the sun, there over there and there and there are a group of people who have a relationship with someone who is in heaven and he is orchestrating every piece of their life. And the way he is doing that, he is giving them words that bring delight and that guide in the right direction. And those words actually are true words. They actually tell you the truth about life. They give you the only accurate picture about life. And, and when you have that accurate picture about life, those words will give you joy and stability in life. So here's, here's the last thing Solomon says. Look, look at 
the end of verse 22. I saw there's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. So how am I going to do that? I'm going to need words from the shepherd, and I've got them. Solomon says, now, I want you to see something. Who can bring that man, who can bring him to see what will be after him? And the answer is God. And that's the last thing. God will redeem the time. God will redeem the time. God is making everything beautiful in its time. You say, well, how in the world does God do that? Well, 25,915. Remember that number? You say, man, I forgot that number. That's why I told you to write it down. 25,915. You know what that number is? It is the average number of days a male living in America lives. The average lifetime, life, lifespan of an American male is 71 years. That's 25,915. When I found that out, I was ticked. I was like, Jerry, you had me think about this number all day, and, and this is what it is? I mean, that's depressing. You say, why is it depressing? Well, on my last birthday, I had lived 20,315 of those days. You say, that's a lot. Yeah. I've got 5,000 plus a few days left if I have that lifestyle, that lifespan. You can put it this way. I've lived 79% of my allotted days. What am I going to do with that time? What have I done with that time? What am I going to do with the rest of that time? And, 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 and if, if that's going to make any difference in my life, God is going to have to redeem the time. And he's going to have to redeem my time personally. And so here it is, Galatians 4, 7. When the fullness of what? Time. At the right time. At the perfect right moment under the sun. The God of heaven sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts saying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a son, a slave rather, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Wow. That changed everything. That went from under the son, a zero game proposition to everything. When I'm done with my 25,915 days, I don't go out with zero. I am an inheritor of everything. So what am I going to inherit? Jesus said, well, let me tell you what the meek are going to inherit. The meek are going to inherit what? The earth. Whoa, 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 whoa. Solomon, hang on a sec. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Time out. Time out. I'm going to inherit the earth. Missing pieces. Broken, twisted, bent pieces. That's, that's the inheritance? Well, listen to this. In Romans chapter 8. For I consider, verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us and so what is that glory? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. Why is it so eager? For the creation was subjected to vanity, futility. Not willingly, but because somebody subjected it. But because of him who subjected it. And that's God at the curse. In hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth unto now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Solomon says it's not the broken twisted, missing pieces world. It is the world 
that has been restored by the atoning work of Jesus to its pristine form like God created it in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It's an amazing story. Now, you say, so what does that mean for me? And the answer is this. Solomon closes this whole book by saying this. Remember your creator. And that's not like just think about him and keep him in your memory. That, that's remember your creator. That is, that is actively align yourself with the creator of all of this. The best time to do that is in the days of your youth. <clears throat> but if you haven't done it in the days of your youth, then the best time to do it is when? Now. And the reason for that is this. Verse 13, the end of the matter we're standing up at the hill. Solomon says, now let me sum it all up for you. Let me tell you everything I saw. Let me, let me, let me give you a conclusion about everything I've told you. The end of the matter is this. All has been heard. And if you want to sum it all up so that you can be like those people who belong to that shepherd and who are guiding their lives by the words that he gave to them, here, here's, here, here's the sum of it all. Fear God. That's the idea of love God, worship God, belong to God. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. And, and remember this, as you live in this broken world, fearing God and experiencing all of the ups and downs and the broken pieces and, and, and justice not prevailing and, and righteousness not prevailing, remember this, there is a coming accountability. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether, whether your good or their evil. This came home to me some years ago, actually many years ago, <clears throat> when I was in Poland. I took a day trip. I had been there teaching in a seminary, and I took a day trip. And outside of uh, a town a couple hours away, outside of Poland, is, is the town of Krakow. And right outside of Krakow is a very, very famous concentration camp called Auschwitz. And I took a trip, and I went to Auschwitz, and it was stunning. Um, I'll never forget it. I'm so glad I went by myself because I was so overwhelmed with the depravity of my heart as a fallen image bearer. You walk in and you see, even after all these decades, the remnants of what people like us did to other people like us. You walk into these rooms and there are these massive showcases and in one there's just mountains of hair shaved from the Jews who were on their way to be either housed in the camp or incinerated in the ovens. And they would use the hair to stuff the mattresses for the German army. You move to another display and there are shoes, just mountains of shoes. Old shoes, new shoes, women's shoes, little tiny infant shoes. And they're just, just piled up. Move in another room, and there are human teeth, just mounds of human teeth that had been extracted from the bodies that had been taken from the, the gas chamber showers prior to them being incinerated. And they took those teeth for their gold fillings. And they're all there. And then you walk out into the camp, and you see these massive sort of footprints of the places where they house these image bearers of God. And eventually you come to the rail place where the trains would come in and the band would be playing and these people would come off the train and they would line up and they would face an examination and they would be to the right or to the left. And you can take the pathway that goes down to the showers where they were told they would be given the first shower they had had in perhaps days. And then on the other side of the showers, you can go to the place where there's sort of the remnant of what used to be massive crematory ovens where the bodies of these image bearers would be incinerated. And I stood there and I picked a brick up because I never want to forget that. This brick has gone with me everywhere I've gone. It's been in every home that I have. 
I was preaching this message recently, and there was a Messianic Jewish rabbi who came up after the service, and he just said to me, can I hold that brick? And he put it in his hands like this. And he said to me, I had family members that went to that oven. I don't know if this brick was actually a part of that oven, but it was in that area. And he said, for us as Jews, we always leave a stone as a memorial. This stone is my visible reminder of my depravity as an image bearer and the brokenness of this world. How could that happen? Have you ever felt that way about anything? How could this have happened? Maybe it's not something as drastic as six million Jews being incinerated by image bearers like us. How could that happen? Maybe it's something far less in our minds, but but equally devastating. How could this happen? How could that happen? How could this happen in a broken world? And God, how are you going to fix this? Well, I have another stone, and this is a piece of alabaster. I led study tours for years to Israel, and I was over there one year, and we got a little piece of alabaster. You remember the story of the woman who had ointment in an alabaster bottle, a broken woman, and she took that ointment and she poured it out on the feet of Jesus. And I keep these two stones on a shelf between a piece of olive wood that has Jesus praying in a garden on the last night of his life. Solomon, as wise as he was, didn't have the ability to fix it. But there would be a descendant of Solomon who would fix it when he got up from that place of prayer and went to a hill, another hill. And from that hill, he rescued the world. And he can do that for your little life and for my little life while we're waiting for the restoration of all things. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. And if the days of your youth are quickly going, remember him him now. Whatever amount of days you have left of that 25,915, line them up on the creator's side and give them to the creator for his use. And be that kind of a person that Solomon would point to in our day and say, see that person over there and that person, the same thing's happening. They live in the same circumstances, but they have joy and they have contentment and they are using their season for my glory. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for this poem in chapter three. Thank you for the message that Solomon has given to us in his wisdom. I pray that it would be an encouragement to us so that we would redeem the time in our ways because you have redeemed us And you are in the process of restoring all things through the work that you have accomplished by the death of your son on the cross. And so, Lord, we want to remember you actively, intentionally, thoughtfully, completely. We want to align ourselves as your people. We want to be the sheep, and we want you to be our shepherd. And we're thankful that through the blood of Jesus Christ, that can happen. And so, Lord, use our time, bless our time, and may we live to the honor and the glory of your name, to the good of your people, to the advancement of the gospel, and to the strength of the church for which you died and now lead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.